If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. This week, I'm pleased to have Caitlin Brown on the Speech Uncensored podcast. Caitlin is here to share information on gastroesophageal reflux disease and EOE. I'm still learning how to properly say the acronym, like what EOE stands for, so I'm just not going to embarrass myself in the intro quite yet. But Caitlin can say it, and she teaches me how in the episode, and um, still working on it. So uh, this episode is so good. Caitlin shares the similarities and differences between GERD and EOE, how to identify between the two um, when you're presented with symptoms, so that you know when to refer what what tests to recommend. And then finally, Caitlin wraps up with treatment options for GERD and EOE in the pediatric swallowing uh, population. So... This was a really fun dive into pediatric dysphagia. I'm delighted to have Caitlin Brown on the podcast this week. I can't wait to hear more from her in the future. My name is Leanne Porter. I am the host of the Speech Uncensored podcast. And now let's get into today's episode. Welcome to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. I am excited to be joined by Caitlin Brown today, and she's going to be bringing her um, experience and knowledge on pediatric swallowing to the show today. So hi, Caitlin. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Um, I'm really excited about our topic that you've picked um, looking at the similarities and differences between GERD and EOE. And for people who aren't familiar with those acronyms, GERD is gastroesophageal reflux disease and EOE is, okay, I'm going to say this wrong, but like esophiliac esophageal. Okay. I'm sure I didn't do it right. Help me out, Caitlin. You're close. You're close. It's eosinophilic esophagitis. (laughs) Okay, good. Do it one more time. Eosinophilic esophagitis. EOE is much easier. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a lot easier. All right. Well, before we jump into our topic, I want to learn a little bit more about you. So um, tell me about you. Where are you? What are you doing? What are you involved in? Everything about your speech life. Yeah. So um, my husband and I live in North Georgia. So we're about 45 minutes north uh, or sorry, south of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, I'm originally from Knoxville, Tennessee. That's where my family lives. Um, But when I met my husband, he has lived here his entire life. So here I am in a small town, Georgia. (laughs) Um, And I work at a private practice pediatric outpatient clinic. So we have speech therapy, occupational therapy, and physical therapy all at our clinic. Um, Actually, a few months ago, shortly before quarantine hit, um, myself and two other colleagues, and then with the assistance of an OT graduate student, we actually launched a intensive feeding clinic. So it's one of those that 
we realized that there was a need for it. There's the closest options are either in Nashville, Tennessee, or in Atlanta, Georgia. And that's about a two hour drive either way for our families. And most of them have other children. And a lot of those programs, you know, they ask you to stay overnight. You're going like three, four sessions a day. And a lot of our families just couldn't do that. So that's kind of what launched us into the feeding program. And, um, so anyway, that's been my biggest adventure here recently. I'm also in the process of getting my clinical doctorate in speech, um, and I'm getting that from Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions. It's in Provo, Utah. Um, I will actually be done this fall, so right before we have our baby. <laughs> so just a little bit going on. Um, <laughs> I started out my speech um, adventure journey in the nursing home life. Um when I was in grad school, I had an amazing placement with a wonderful supervisor in a skilled nursing facility, and I absolutely fell in love. Um, and I thought for sure that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Um, and I had some wonderful experiences that I wouldn't trade for anything. Um, but when I moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee in 2015, um, I was working at a skilled nursing facility and I just wasn't getting you know, my full 40 hours. So I picked up PRN jobs here and there. And then one of my colleagues actually referred me to where I work now because they were in desperate need of a speech therapist, even just part-time. So I picked up some hours there. I was working um, like three or four hours in the afternoon after I would work at the nursing home. Um, so it was nice. It gave me like, I got my adults and then I got my kid feel, you know, cause I've always loved kids. So it was like the best of both worlds. Um, and then we kind of hit a, a, it was a slow, but steady downward spiral spiral, if you will, at the nursing home I was at, there were a lot of issues and a lot of things that needed to be dealt with that, um, personally, based on my morals and ethics, I just couldn't stay there any longer. Um, so I ended up asking my now boss if she would be open to, you know, a possible full-time position with me. And she was, uh, of course, she was like, oh my gosh, I've been waiting for you to say that to me. <laughs> she was like, yes, yes, yes. When can you start next week? And I was like, well, I need a little bit longer than that. <laughs> um, so I got in, I got started there. And at the time it was just myself and one other full-time speech therapist. And she was really, you know, very interested in, um, early intervention and our younger kiddos. I have always loved swallowing, you know, working with swallowing patients in the adult world. Um, so I kind of just started getting all of the swallowing kids and I thought, Oh, I got this. You know, it's pretty similar. Huh? No, not at all. <laughs> I mean, obviously some of your terminology is the same, um, but that's about it. So <laughs> there's a lot of other stuff going on. Um, so I ended up, you know, I had to jump full force into research. I started taking continuing education courses. Um, so um, I started full-time at the pediatric clinic in 2017. And um, since that point, um, I have just really dove in headfirst with research and then with, you know, getting all of these different swallowing kids. And I kept having these new disorders and diagnoses coming up that I just didn't know enough about. Um, and so that kind of fueled my fire and my desire to learn more. And 
now here we are. We've launched a feeding clinic and um, I see feeding and swallowing kiddos all morning long, um, Monday through Thursday. And then in the afternoons, I see regular standard speech kiddos. And on Fridays, I see just my standard speech kiddos. So nice. Yeah. I really like that. It's like very structured. So in your, like the feeding clinic that you've, you guys have established, Mm -hmm. um, you said it was intensive. So are they coming like every day, like Monday through Thursday? So what we, what we've developed is we do a multidisciplinary evaluation. So the OT and myself are both in there for the evaluation. And at that time, after we've done the full, you know, full eval, and we feel like we have a pretty good grasp on the child, we will step out and discuss what we think is necessary for that kid. Um, And then based on our recommendations, you know, we submit it to insurance, all that kind of stuff. So we do have the option where it can be every day, you know, five days a week. Um, Most of our kids so far have been generally like two to four days a week as what's appropriate for them. Um, So we have the two options. So we have the intensive option and then we have um, just the standard outpatient option. Um, So with the intensive, that's based around just doing like four to five days a week for 12 weeks. And then at the end of that 12 weeks, our goal is discharge or to bump, you know, bump down significantly to just outpatient. Okay, cool. Um, I have like a million questions about this. (laughs) Um, Are parents in the therapy sessions or do you work only with the child at the beginning And then does that change? Does it just really depend on the child and the child's needs and kind of a bunch of different factors? Yeah. So most of our kiddos that qualify for the intensive or even just for standard outpatient services, you know, the, the first thing you have to do is develop that relationship with them because if they don't trust you, you're not going to get anywhere. (laughs) It's just not going to happen. Um, and so a lot of times we'll have our parents in there for the first couple of sessions because it makes the kids more comfortable. And then generally we'll have them step out for a little while, you know, there's not really, we don't have a set like, okay, for eight sessions, the parents are not going to be in there and then they can rejoin. Like it's not, it's based, it's all based on the kid, you know, and how they're progressing, how they're doing with us, all that kind of stuff. Um, but our ultimate goal is to always bring the parents back in because in the long haul, you know, those kids aren't going to be seeing us forever. So they're going to be transitioning to a home program where we've got to make sure that our coaching model that we've provided to these families is something that they feel comfortable and confident doing on their own at home. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes sense. I like that. All right. (laughs) Um, Now that I've gotten us off track, let's get back (laughs) to GERD and EOE. Um, And let's talk about um, what they are. What are the similarities and what are the differences between the two? Yeah. Um, So, as you, as you touched on, you know, GERD is gastroesophageal reflux disease. It's been around for many, many years. We all know this is that terrible heartburn we get after we eat like spicy meal, something, you know, after you've had a tomato or orange juice or fried foods, you know, even when you wake up in the morning. Um, but mind you, 
that is something that too, like anyone can have reflux, but that doesn't mean that you have GERD. Um, that's a common like <laughs> misconception. So GERD is actually something that has to be diagnosed by a physician. Um, and it's typically diagnosed after they've done some sort of upper endoscopy and they've really identified where, you know, they've got, they're seeing that constant irritation of the esophagus. Um, and so obviously with GERD, there's, you know, different levels of severity and it presents in a lot of different ways and a lot of different people. Um, so for me, this is one where it was kind of easy to get into these, I guess, these two topics because I have had GERD since I was 16. Um, <laughs> so that's what has kind of fueled my fire too, with like just interest in the whole GI world. Um, and I think it, it honestly gives me a better understanding of it. Um, I have, I've got just different stomach issues and GERD and, um, they all just tie in together. And it's amazing how if your gut isn't functioning properly, nothing else is going to function properly. Um, and I talk with my parents about that all the time. Um, so basically after the doctors, you know, identify this and they find that there's, you know, something wrong with that endoscopy, they're going to recommend medications, some, some sort of changes in your diet, that kind of thing. Um, whereas EOE, the eosinophilo, see, now I messed it up. Eosinophilitis <laughs> is, um, it's not new to the GI world, but I would definitely say, um, it's newer. The identification and diagnosis rate has drastically increased even over the past 10 years. Um, so that's one that for the longest time, these, kids and adolescents were going undiagnosed and they were just being treated as GERD patients um, because people didn't know a lot about EOE. And so they didn't really think of it being another option. And then when they started delving further into that research and they started identifying, hey, this could be something different. And actually, and it kind of makes you frustrated at the same time because the test is actually super simple. So what happens is during an upper endoscopy, the GI or the ENT will take a biopsy of the eosinophils. And if they, and then after that, when they test it, if there's more than 15 eosinophils, then that's indicative of EOE. If it's 10 or less, that's indicative of GERD. So that's a nice, like, clear delineation between the two. Um, so you would think like, okay, cool. This is it. This is all we need. Right. Not really. <laughs> so, um, a lot of times you still run into those real old timey GI doctors that are like, Oh, it's just GERD. We're just going to, you know, we're going to put them on a proton pump inhibitor or for my little infants, we're going to add some rice cereal to their bottles and they're going to be fine. <laughs> it's like, okay. So then you have an 18 month old who ends up coming to us because they're not eating or they're not able to keep their food down or they're spitting all their food out, poor weight gain. Um, you name it, we've pretty much heard it. And, um, you know, those are some things that really always make my EOE flags go off. <laughs> um, and, Sometimes it takes getting a second opinion. Um, I have had families who have had to go to other GIs because the one that they have is just dead set that it's only GERD. Or like we talked about a minute ago before we jumped on here, um, I run into the issue where pediatricians will automatically say 
you know, okay, the kid has GERD. We're going to, again, add rice cereal to their bottle or we'll start them on Rantadine or, you know, something like that. And then they just never refer them to a GI, which is always interesting to me too. Um, So oftentimes I'll get people that come into our clinic and I'm the one who refers them for their first GI appointment. Um, So anyway, okay, now I'm getting off track. (laughs) Okay. I love it. Okay. That's good though. because I've got a couple questions. Yeah. So I guess when I thought like that, What's the age ranges that you see? Because earlier you mentioned, you know, an 18 month old. So are what, tell me what you're like, who will you see in your, in your feeding clinic? Yeah. Um, so the youngest, let's see, I'm trying to think the youngest I have seen has been like a one month old. Um, but that's also, you know, that's a kiddo that's having trouble with tolerating a bottle or, you know, they're aspirating on their bottles, different things like that. Typically I don't see, GERD and EOE patients that early. Um, my earliest EOE kiddo that I've had, uh, let's see, he just turned nine months um, and just got diagnosed. And that was one, he's actually an interesting case. Um, he is a foster child um, and he um, he suffered drug exposure while in utero. And that's a whole other topic we could delve into on another day where, you know, nine times out of 10, the kiddos that have been exposed to drugs in utero have difficulties with feeding and swallowing. Um, but anyway, um, so this little guy, he came to us and he was on honey thickened liquids, um, just by adding the oatmeal to his bottles. And his foster mom was telling me about how he would, he would only drink two to three ounces of a bottle and then be done. And he would go eight hours without drinking a bottle, or she would have to sit there and force him to drink one to two ounces. So, you know, again, my red flags are going off. Okay. Something is not right. There's something going on in this little guy's body that's telling him to not eat. You know, um, that's not normal. We all know that babies eat, babies love to eat. (laughs) That's all they want to do. Um, so when I heard that, you know, obviously my first one, my first thing was to reach out to the pediatrician and they weren't super concerned because he wasn't losing weight and he was gaining weight just fine. I tried to discuss with them. Well, that's probably from all the oatmeal that he's having in his bottle because they're having to thicken to the honey thickened liquids. Um, so the oatmeal is obviously going to pack on the pounds <laughs> for little ones. And, um, so they weren't super concerned, but I went ahead and asked if we could you know, refer to a GI just to go ahead and get the process rolling. Um, at that time, he also had a real, like, we call it a honking sound. Um, and usually it's indicative of laryngomalacia or tracheomalacia or both. Um, so we went ahead and got him in with a GI and with a pulmonologist. Um, and something I have to talk about with you later is at our local hospital where a lot of our kiddos go, they now have an aerodigestive team. So they've got it's the pulmonologist, the GI, and the ENT all right there. And so they all do the triple scopes, um, which is like my favorite test of all time because it tells you pretty much everything you need to know. <laughs> so um, so he had one of those done um, after he had a – first he just had a standard endoscopy done. Um, and, you know, they definitely – that was when automatically they said, okay – he, you know, we're seeing he has laryngeal malaysia, but we want to do further testing. 
So then they had the triple scope and that was when they took the biopsy and he was diagnosed with EOE at nine months. So, and all of this with the pediatrician being like, we're not concerned. He's maintaining and gaining weight appropriately. Uh huh. And he's got laryngomalacia and EOE uh-huh. because you were like, let's go up the chain. Let's get this child with some diagnostic testing done. Yes. And <laughs> like, go, Caitlin, go. That is one thing I will say. I kind of, I kind of pride myself on that. I, if I feel like in my gut, there's something wrong, I'm going to go with it. Um, now, obviously there have been plenty of times where I've hit that wall with, referrals or with asking for certain tests. And sometimes they just don't want to do it. (laughs) And most of the time it takes a phone call. Um, But I must say over the past three years, I've developed a really good relationship with a lot of our pediatricians and definitely our GIs and our pulmonology group. Um, I probably talk to the GIs and pulmonologists at least once a week about any different kid. Um, So that definitely helps because they, you know, they gained another level of respect for me because I was constantly calling with questions or concerns about their patients. So, you know, they're, they're more apt to do what you ask them or be more considerate of what you ask them if you make that effort. Cause I've had friends who also work with pediatrics and they're like, how do you get your GIs to do that for you? I'm like, honestly, I just talk with them over and over. And I voice my concerns and I have my parents do the same thing. You know, I, I tell my parents, I'm like, Hey, at the end of the day, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? <laughs> like if you continue to tell these doctors that you think something is wrong with your child, eventually they're going to do something about it. Eventually they're going to order a test. Eventually they're going to see, okay, maybe something really is wrong. And then we'll get to the bottom of it. So Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. I really, we didn't really plan to go down this wheel, but I, I know <laughs> here and like all the important features that it's unpacked. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's such a crucial part of our job. Um, okay. So back to GERD and EOE. Yeah. <laughs> I actually had a follow-up question. You said yeah. when they do the biopsy of a, a sinophil. Yeah. Did I say that right? You okay. did. <laughs> Woohoo. <laughs> um, what is an eosinophil? Like, is that part of the tissue lining our esophagus? Uh, do they go under? Is that inside of the tissue? Like, is that some tiny cell in the... Yes. So we all have them, um, but your body should not be producing. So like when I was saying that the 10 or less is indicative of GERD, um, really your body should not be producing more than from what I have read. And this is one I should have dug deeper into this because I don't want to answer this incorrectly. Um, But that's one from my understanding, we all produce them, but they should be like one to two is like standard for somebody that doesn't have any kind of concerns. Um, And from my understanding, it is, it's like a little cell um, and it's similar to like a white blood cell. Mm, Okay. Um, Yeah. So, but that is one before I del before I do anything else, I don't want to say anything wrong. That's when I would want to look up more. Yeah. When we were um, chatting earlier, you were describing EOE and that it's like an allergic reaction and it's a, a condition that never goes away. You, you always have it. And so that allergic reaction brings more, like if we think of 
eosinophils as like white blood cells. When we have an infection, that's where the white blood cells go there to do their immune thing. <laughs> I sound so, so scientific right now. And so that's where we get some of that swelling around like a cut or something like that. So that's what's happening down there, esophagus. It's kind of swelling and it's painful. Yep. And exactly. Okay. So those poor kiddos, and the, that's, I think that's one of the hardest things is that these kids, you know, they can't tell us that their throats hurt or that it's, you know, it hurts to swallow or whatever, it, however it may be presenting for them. They can't tell us that. Um, and like I was saying earlier, a lot of times the kiddos don't get diagnosed until 18 to 24 months. Um, and so that's when, by that point, now we have a child that has a feeding disorder because they are terrified to eat because everything that they eat hurts. Um, yeah, they built up a really strong aversion, exactly. like a learned habit. Like I would avoid the mess out of eating too. Exactly. that, And I have to explain that to my parents because when they come to us at that point, they're, I mean, they're desperate. Um, uh, another case that I can think of, he, when he came to us, he was 20 months um, and he had been diagnosed with EOE about two months before that. So right at 18 months. And the only thing that was keeping that child from having a feeding tube placed was the fact that he drank four Pediasures a day. Um, so he's living off Pediasure. And um, he wasn't, at that point, he wasn't eating anything by mouth. Um, and he had some pretty severe oral aversions, refusal behaviors, like mom and dad would try to give him a bite and he'd, you know, push their hand away or he'd just clamp his mouth down, wouldn't even open his mouth. Um, we've got him to the point now he's much more open to the idea of food. Um, <clears throat> and that's one where, again, my colleague and I, the, one of the OTs that I work with, she has been working really hard with him on the sensory side of things. Um, and, you know, just kind of that showing them that food isn't scary. <laughs> that's one of the biggest things. And I touch on this later when we talk about, you know, some different interventions, with your kids with GERD and your kids with EOE, the very first thing you've got to do for those children is show them that eating and drinking is not scary and it's not meant to hurt. So what we're going to give you is not going to hurt you, but that can take a long time to get to that point. Um, so we have some kids that, you know, they're with us for a couple years before we actually get them to the point where they're able to safely eat and drink multiple things on their own, you know, because of that deep, that deep rooted anxiety. Um, and that gets into a whole other topic of, um, possible ARFID where it's the anxiety produced food refusals. Um, and Melanie Potok does a wonderful course on that. Um, if anyone is ever interested in learning more about ARFID and refusal aversions, all that kind of stuff, she is fantastic. Um, but that is one where you have to be very sensitive to those kids. And we have to do a lot, a lot of parent education. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So in my head, I'm trying to, we've trying to like differentiate between the two. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm pretty familiar with GERD. Like I got, I got reflux down pretty well. Yeah. And so I go back to EOE. So we've identified that it's diagnosed by a biopsy and they count the eosinophils in that biopsy. Mm -hmm. Now, how do they treat it? Once they've identified it, all right, what we have here is a case of EOE. Right. 
how do they treat it so that when that child swallows in the future, it's not so painful or discomfort? Um, the first thing that they're going to do is they're going to go through, it's typically, essentially a diet elimination process. Um, so for these kiddos, the most common allergies found in EOE are dairy, wheat, soy, eggs, nuts, and seafood, which is like pretty much everything we eat, right? <laughs> so um, to add into like my success stories, I have a little girl that has EOE and she is, goodness, how old is she now? She's five or six. Um, and it, it goes it speaks volumes to her parents. Um, they went, I mean, they jumped headfirst into doing the food elimination diet to figure out what her allergens were, because a lot of times when they identify this EOE, the kiddos are fairly young. And so the doctors don't really want to put them through the entire process of getting stuck with a hundred needles at the allergist to see what foods they're specifically allergic to. Now, eventually down the road when they're, you know, three, four years old, they're definitely going to want to see an allergist. Um, so that is something that will always come into the picture at some point in that child's life, just to confirm or deny specific allergens. Um, but for our little ones, doing the food elimination diet is much easier. Um, the parents may not think so, but it's much easier for the child too. Um, so generally when they get that diagnosis, the, you know, the GI doctor or the ENT that finds it will sit down with the family and go over in detail what they're expecting them to do. They give them lots of handouts. Um, and, you know, basically it's just like any other food elimination diet where you, you can't eat any of that stuff for usually like 30 days, cut it all out of your diet. And then you slowly add one thing back in at a time. So with that, with having so many allergens right there, you have to be very careful of, excuse me, what you add back in and how you add it back in. Um, cause a lot of things, for example, will have wheat and dairy. And so you don't want to add both in back, you know, at the same time, because then you still aren't going to know what's your trigger. Um, so in my personal experience, a lot of my kids will end up where they have two to three allergens. Um, I personally have never seen a kid with all six. <laughs> that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, I went to a really fantastic course at Vanderbilt University and they had some of their GI doctors come and speak with us. And they were talking about the patients that they see where, I mean, their clinic specializes in EOE. Um, and so they were talking about some of the kids that they saw and they certainly saw children that were allergic to all six. Um, so you get really creative with their diets at that point. Um, but at this point, at that point in the process, when you're doing the diet elimination, it's really all about the parents. You've got to get the parents on board. Um, that's when the kiddo I was telling you guys about just a few minutes ago when he was diagnosed at 18 months, I had to, I mean, I had to take extra time and sit down with the parents and it really explain to them Y'all are going to have to go through the grocery store and look at every single label. If it says contains milk, contains wheat, contains soy, you cannot give it to him during these three, you know, these 30 days. And they're like, what, what, well, can we try this? And I'm like, well, what does it have in it? And they'd be like, oh, well, it has milk in it. So we can't do that. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. So, you know, again, that, that parent education piece is huge. Um, 
And a lot of times that is something that does fall on us, the SLPs, because a lot of times, I mean, and this is no fault of theirs, but the GI doctors, they don't have the time. I mean, <laughs> their, you know, their appointment times are usually carved out for five to 15 minutes max. Um, and then the kid obviously will see the nurse as well, but still they generally are not, they're not going to have that time to dedicate to sit down with the parents and make sure. And a lot of times too, I found that my parents feel more comfortable talking to me about it versus talking to a GI doctor because I'm, for whatever reason, I'm less scary than the doctor. <laughs> so, um, and I have found different ways to give them, you know, a lot of different examples and things like that, that just kind of breaks it down to a level that they understand. And I think that that's a big part of it too. Um, so basically from that point, you find out what their allergens are, and then you slowly start adding those back in, seeing what they can and can't tolerate. Um, and then from that point, if the child is still having those severe reactions, severe allergens, um, that's usually when the GI doctor will start to try different medications or steroids. Now, as we all know, you don't want to be on steroids for life, right? So that's the other downside of EOE is finding what's going to work. Um, and this is one, I didn't do a ton of stuff on this just because a lot of, for me personally, a lot of my kiddos don't end up on medications. Um, a lot of times what will happen or what I have seen is that they will get a steroid or two after they've done the elimination diet. And then it's almost like when they have an allergic reaction or they have like a flare up is when the doctor will have them take a steroid. And then it's like, you just kind of get back on track. Um, I've also seen it where kids, they've had them go back through the process of the diet elimination, because as we well know, kids change every day and their bodies change. Um, and you can develop allergies throughout your life. I mean, I developed an allergy to penicillin when I was 24 years old like never any issues. And then 24 broke out in a crazy rash after having strep throat. So <laughs> it happens. Like you can always develop those allergies. Um, typically they're obviously not going to be as severe and in, in the form of EOE, but when a child already has a diagnosis of EOE, there's always the potential for different flare ups. Um, and then obviously you're going to run into the issue where, you know, the kid goes to a friend's house and they eat something they're not supposed to. And that's where one of those flare-ups will happen. Um, so in, go ahead. Um, what, when they're having um, a flare-up, an allergic reaction, what does it look like anything? Will something happen to their skin? Will, will something be visible to us or will they just have that sensation of painful swallowing? Yeah. So typically we can't see it to the naked eye. Um, every once in a while, if it is like a very, very severe allergy, it can be one where, you know, I mean, if they're truly full blown allergic to something, it's the same kind of thing where they can go into anaphylactic shock. Um, but that's why, you know, I was saying earlier, like they, they always have to go back in and see that allergist at some point to see if those like one of those six common allergens is more of just like a trigger to the EOE or if it's a true allergy. 
Um, if that makes sense. So, you know, cause like you think about somebody that's allergic to let's say bees, or I have a friend that I work with, she's severely allergic to peanut butter and, and nuts, and she will go into anaphylactic shock. Um, so that's one where, yes, a lot of times these kids may have that severe allergen. Um, but that's where, you know, going to the allergist will, actually identify those. But typically when a kiddo has a flare up, what you're going to see is just kind of that overall pain. Um, they'll refuse to eat or drink anything after they have had that flare up or during a flare up, because you think about, I mean, it's essentially just red and swollen and irritated in there. So my example that I use, and this, I don't know if this is a good one, but it really makes it clear for my parents is, Think about after you've like thrown up, like had a stomach bug or something, and you've thrown up multiple times, those first few meals, your throat's still kind of sore, right? So imagine that feeling times like 10 and it being pretty much all the time. And that's before the diagnosis, you know, obviously, but once they have that diagnosis, that that's kind of that flare up that you'll see. Um and that's, and that's another one too. They, I mean, kiddos, they may end up vomiting. They may just have overall nausea. Um, I mean, they'll complain of their chest hurting, their throat hurting, things like that. I was thinking, can we get into how to I identify the symptoms between GERD and EOE? Mm -hmm. So let's say um, a child and their parents are coming to the clinic. Mm -hmm. What might be some of the things that they are describing to you that make you think one over the other. Yeah. Um, so like we talked about earlier, a lot of times with my kids with GERD or EOE, they've been to their pediatrician. Their pediatrician has either put them on a proton pump inhibitor, um, which is, you know, the Zantac, Rantadine. Obviously there's also prescription medications. Those are just some of the over-counter one, over-the-counter meds that they like to use. Um, Excuse me. And um, so a lot of times what I have found that are kind of, I would say my <laughs> red flags for EOE. Um, when I hear a parent tell me my child is refusing to eat, my child's eating just enough. Like I was telling you about that little baby that will, you know, he would just get enough to essentially where his body knows, okay, dude, You've got to eat, you've got to drink to survive. If you don't, you're going to, you know, our bodies automatically go into that fight or flight. And that happens when they're infants too. And I think people forget that, um, you know, their body is not going to not let them eat um, even when it hurts. But that's when you're going to see the very low volume going in. Um, pain during swallowing. Um, another one that I hear a lot of is vomiting after every meal. So, um, I recently had a little one who her mom was telling me about, you know, well, after every time I give her a bottle and after every time she has, um, baby foods, which is what we're on now, you know, she's vomiting anywhere from 25 to 30 minutes after. And so again, those are not like set in stone. These are the symptoms. You've definitely got EOE. There's no way for us to tell by the naked eye. The only way to know for sure is to have that upper endoscopy done and have them do the biopsy. Um, and there have been plenty of times where I'm wrong and I, I'm very thankful that I am 
because I don't want the child to have EOE. I would, but I would also much rather have that child go in, have a scope done, see what's going on. Because obviously any of those things that are happening, those aren't normal, regardless of how you look at it. And regardless of what the, you know, the final outcome and diagnosis may be, none of those things are normal and none of those things should be happening. So when they are, obviously we need to figure out why, um, so that we're not just throwing a bandaid on it and saying, Oh, okay, they're going to be fine. (laughs) So, and you know, and that's something too, I like to talk about is we don't want to, you can't just treat a symptom when you're working with feeding and swallowing disorders, you need to really know the etiology of what you're treating. Um, you know, and that's something in adults, we take it for granted sometimes, I think, because almost always our patients are going and they're having modifieds done or they have a fees done. So you can pretty much always see what's going on and getting them in with a GI doctor for whatever reasons was much easier (laughs) than with kids. And so that's one of those, again, you've got to know the cause of the feeding or swallowing dysfunction disorder before you can really treat it appropriately. Um, So like I said, when I hear those different things, that's usually, that's my indicator to refer. So if they're already seeing a GI doctor, as soon as I have that evaluation, I get on the phone and I call my GI group and I talk with them and just tell them, you know, Hey, I just saw this family in office. Here are my concerns. Can we go ahead and get an upper GI? Nine times out of 10, they've already ordered it. So it's not a big deal. (laughs) Um, But every once in a while, they're like, oh, we hadn't thought like, we're just going to try, you know, they'll try a diet modification of some type. Or if it's a younger one, they'll try to change the formula or something like that. Um, Excuse me, before they'll do an upper GI. And a lot of that I get because with our kids, with an upper endoscopy, they have to, they have to go under. So they're going to do everything they can to avoid having to put them under anesthesia. And I totally understand that. Um, but that's when, if I'm hearing multiple symptoms, that's when I automatically go ahead and refer. Um, and again, you can, the best way to get to the point where I'm at is just build that relationship with those GIs and ENTs. Um, because like I said, now I can call them and say, Hey, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm thinking. Can we go ahead and get this, you know, get this on the books, get this scheduled and have an upper endoscopy done. And can y'all do a biopsy? And, you know, most of the time they don't ever tell me no anymore. Um, now in the beginning (laughs) we did have that issue. Um, but like I said, that's the best thing you can do. And then at the end of the day, pretty much always something is going to come back from that upper GI you're going to find something, whether it's, you know, their upper esophageal sphincter isn't opening and closing and constricting properly, or whether it be they have laryngomalacia, tracheomalacia, or let's say they just have GERD. And in that, in that case, I always consider that like my best case scenario. Um, cause that's definitely one of the easiest ones to manage. Um, and then obviously there are your kids that get diagnosed with EOE. And then you have the crazy random kiddos that we just don't know (laughs) and nothing comes back. Everything comes back clean. And that happens too. And I see that all the time where 
these kids will come in with all these like super severe GI issues and, you know, all these things that make you think, oh gosh, there's something bigger going on. There's something bigger. So they go, they have the upper GI done. Some of them even have a triple scope. They've had a swallow study. Everything comes back good, good, good. And sometimes it just, for a kid, they just have to grow. They just like, their structures just have to get more adult-like. They just have to get more pronounced and more, um, what is the word I'm thinking of? I mean, overall, just your structure is mature. Um, and that just takes time sometimes. So, you know, best thing that we can do in that situation is, you know, oral motor activities, exercises, trying different foods, you know, modifying what we can to make the best case scenario for that child. Okay. That leads in really nice to my last and my final question. Yeah. Because we're nearing our time very closely. Um, how are you treating EOE in these patients? Um, you talked about how they go on a um, food elimination diet. That's clearly not something, you know, you can work on in a therapy session. Yep. Um, they're checking in with an allergist to see how kind of all that plays into things. Mm-hmm. Um they are exploring if they need any medication or steroid management with that. That's also like not something we're really touching on in therapy. Right. So when these kids come in to see you, is it like, are you just working on basically their learned aversion and trying to break them from that habit now that ideally, like they're not experiencing that level of pain in their esophagus when they swallow? Yeah. So Kind of like we talked about earlier, you know, the one of the very first things you have to do with these kids is gain their trust. You have to show them that the food is not scary. Food is fun. Food is good. Like it can be really tasty, all that kind of stuff. Um, like I said, gaining their trust is definitely the largest hurdle to overcome. Um, and what we see a lot of times in these kiddos, because they are eating or drinking so little, um, we will see some general like muscle atrophy where you will need to work on some of those different oral motor skills, such as just, I mean, I, a lot of mine don't have that just up down chew pattern. Um, you know, they might munch with their front teeth or they've been so used to spitting food out that they've developed like a lingual thrusting pattern. Um, and so we have to work to, you know, obviously eliminate those behaviors and eliminate those things and show them how we're supposed to chew and swallow food. Um, a lot of them have overall poor bolus management where they either will lose it anteriorly or posteriorly. I have a lot of severe pocketers when they present with GERD or EOE, um, because they have learned that it makes their parents happy when they take a bite. And so they'll take the bite, but they know that it hurts when they swallow. So, oh, hey, I got these cool cheek things. I'm going to put it in here and leave it in here. And then 20 minutes later, I'll pop it out. And the parents are like, what the heck? Like the parents have think like they've thought that they've swallowed. And then it's like, nope, surprise, it's still in there. <laughs> That's probably one of the most common ones that I see that I have to work on a lot is, um, and one of my favorite things to do for that is having, I either call it like my all done cup or my all done bowl, um, where when you're starting out, if they, if they take a bite and they chew it up and they're just not ready to swallow it, we are going to praise them. We're going to celebrate the fact that they put that food in their mouth. They tried to chew it up and then, okay, we're not quite ready to swallow. That's okay. Let's spit it out in our cup because that gets them away from pocketing and it gets them, it gets them away also from just that overstuffing 
Um, because that's where a lot of times I'll end up seeing that premature loss of the bolus. So, you know, you end up with the coughing and that's, you know, well, that goes down a whole other avenue. Um, but they can spit it into that cup and they know whatever's in that cup, Miss Caitlin is not getting back out of the cup. So that's their all done cup. Now we may try another bite of that same food. They can chew it up. If we're still not ready to swallow, you can still put it back in that cup. Um, and that again is, that's one more level of gaining their trust. It's showing them that it's okay to take a bite, chew it up. And then if you're just not ready to swallow it, that's okay. Like we'll get there. That's, you know, that's way down the road. Um, and that's another one where I was talking about, you know, parent education, this kind of pulls into what we base a lot of our feeding and swallowing therapy around with our feeding clinic is, you know, extensive coaching models for our parents. So everything that we're doing with their child, we want to teach them how to do, essentially. Um, So, you know, we want to show them how to feed their child. We want to give them those different techniques that we use that we find, you know, positive results with, like the all done cup. And, you know, just even so some of it ties in like SOS methods. Some of it ties in behavioral methods. Um, There's not we don't use one strict method in our clinic. Um, it all depends on the child and with, with EOE and with GERD, um, we have found that using a mixture of both, because a lot of times, yes, these kiddos have the anxiety produced refusals and aversions, um, where you have to, you know, they have some behaviors that you have to be sensitive to, but then they've, they've also developed these pretty negative behaviors that, in reality, like we can't go through life throwing all of our food on the floor. So that's one where, again, hey, you've got an all done cup, you've got an all done bowl, we can put it in there, but we're not going to throw it on the floor, you know. Um, So just again, teaching our parents how to feed their child and then how to introduce these new foods. So my favorite example, and I know we're we're almost out of time. um, But my favorite example to give to my parents is, and this is one for everybody, but if someone just put a bite or a spoonful of something up to your mouth, are you just going to take a bite? Are you just going to put it in your mouth? Cause I know I wouldn't, like, <laughs> right? you know, I mean, you're going to want to smell it. You're going to want to ask them what it is. What does it taste like? All those things. And that is such a common misconception. I think like parents forget that, like <laughs> you just take the spoon and Oh, here, take a bite. And the kid's like, no. And the parents like, oh my gosh, take a bite. And they get frustrated. And then it's like, wait, did you tell them what you're giving them? Did you talk to them about this food? Like they have no idea what you're trying to get them to take a bite of. So that's always something, like I said, it really hits home with my families because they're like, oh, that's really, that's a good idea. Um, so we use a lot of like the different play. Um, so this is one that we, we've we kind of adopted from a Melanie Potok. Um, we took one of her courses and she uses um, an explore, expose, and expand model. So with that model, you know, you're looking, you want to expose the child to all sorts of different foods. And it's based around the foods that the family eats a lot of, because, you know, you'll have families that are like, oh, well, we really want them to eat broccoli. Okay, great. Do y'all eat broccoli? Well, not really. 
well, why do you want them to why, broccoli? <laughs> why would you do that to your child if you don't even like it? Like if you're not going to make it for you. Exactly. Um, so just exposing them to all those different foods and then letting them explore it. That means you've got to let your kid get messy. And <laughs> some parents are very like, oh, I don't want to do that. Like, but I'm just like, you know what? The bathtub is right down the hall. Like let, you know, you don't do this. You don't have to do this at a restaurant, but like when you're at home, give them this food, let them get it on their hands, bring it to their face. They can put it in their mouth. They can take it out of their mouth, which is disgusting to us, but it's a really good exploration tool for the kids. Um, and then obviously the expand is as you, you know, as the child starts to eat one of those foods, then you start to build on that food. So let's say we get them to eat peanut butter because their siblings eat lots of PB&Js. So our goal is to get to a PB&J, but we start with peanut butter. So they've, we're at the point, they eat peanut butter. All right, great. Now we're going to introduce the jelly, or now we're going to introduce a little piece of bread dipped in the peanut butter, things like that. Um, so it's just building off of that. So those are, I know that's a lot all like crammed together because we were kind of crunched for time, but Again, the basic things to remember, you've got to gain the child's trust, show them that food is not scary, food is fun, and it tastes delicious. Um, you've got your parent education piece and your parent coaching model that you're using a lot of, again, showing them how to feed their child and how to make, how to make it fun. Um, and obviously then, like I was saying, we use that explore, expose, and expand model where the kids just get to play with the food. They get to explore it on their own terms. Um, and that's really important too with that trust. So everything kind of ties in together. Awesome. I've like really enjoyed this. Um, when I first started out in outpatient, I saw primarily pediatrics. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of got into a little bit of that feeding world um, before moving and, and then just working with adults and outpatient. And I really enjoyed learning about all of the like sensory approaches and like working through those aversions and just making food fun again. Yes. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah, absolutely. That is, that's definitely one of our favorite parts. And that's one where it, I mean, we're very, very fortunate that myself and my coworker, um, that we just, I mean, we love working together. We both understand like, you know, she deals with the sensory side of things that that's the OT, you know, that's OT land. Um, and then, there's always some kind of speech piece that ties in, whether it be, you know, they've got poor oral motor skills, they can't chew their foods, or they're taking too long to chew or, you know, whatever other swallowing issue may be involved is one where we can come together and we treat, I mean, we don't treat together, obviously, but we're, you know, we're working as a team to help this child reach, you know, their potential and help them eat again or eat for the first time. <laughs> so yeah, that's so awesome. It's a really rewarding area to work in. Yes. Like, I love it. Thank you so much for sharing all this information. I totally feel like I have such a better grasp of EOE. Um, Cause I'll see it in patients charts. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I had like a kernel of knowledge about it, but now you've really expanded my understanding of how it works. Um, so I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, Caitlin. This was wonderful. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. Me too.
Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at speechtherapypd.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 